0: So we're continuing on uh, with our Colony series. We're wrapping that up uh, here very shortly. Um, And and one of the things that we've we've talked about in this season, I think, that the Lord's really calling us to um, is increasing the call for us to go out into the world and to be a faithful presence. So we've been asking this question, uh, what does it mean for us to be the people of God in the 21st century? And so much of that is, what is it that you and I carry with us when we go out and we engage with our friends and our family and the people that we work with, whether it's in the city of Orlando or half a world away? Um, And so several weeks ago, uh, our dear friend Steve Wimmer, everyone give Steve a round of applause. Uh, Steve actually led us on a Saturday morning through um, a discussion on what modern... Not just evangelism, because I think a lot of times that word comes with these negative connotations, but us really going out and sharing the good news, what does that really look like? And we want to continue to weave that into the culture of our church, that we're evangelistic, that we go out and we share the good news with everything that we say and everything we do. And so um, I just really wanted to, to bring Steve up here to, to give us the word tonight. He's an incredibly uh, solid man of God. He has so many years of following the Lord and um, being faithful to say yes to him in various areas of ministry. And so um, we've invited Steve to come up and share tonight. So if you guys just want to um, just extend a hand or, or bow your head or whatever you feel comfortable, we're going to pray for Steve. Um, Lord, we know that you equip the willing. Um, Lord, I'm so thankful that Steve has said yes to your call uh, to be that kind of faithful presence, to speak out of his story, uh, to speak out of the things that you've revealed to him, uh, and to share that with us, Lord, like that, that widow who in her joy um, brings together her friends to celebrate that she's discovered that, that coin that was lost and is now found. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, I pray that your Spirit uh, would speak powerfully tonight through Steve, um, that we would come to new revelation of what you're really like and who you're calling us to be because of that, Father. So we pray for open eyes to see you move. We pray for open ears to hear your voice. We pray for open hearts to receive your truth, and we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Cool, I'm excited. Um, Yeah, I'm like 80% excited, 80% excited, (laughs) 10% nervous, and 10% just sweaty. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to just get started because I'm a new face for most of you with a uh, old school youth group, youth group icebreaker, if that's okay. We don't have time for everyone to play, so it's just going to be me. Um, but it's, called, it's Two Truths and a Lie. Anybody ever play this? Okay, so I'm just going to say three like data points, and two of them are going to be totally true, factual, and one of them is just going to be made up. And you just kind of have to guess, and it's how you get to know people. Um, I, was, I actually sweated this for a long time because I was like, well, I don't want to brag, but then I also don't want to say anything that destroys my credibility. So, like, if you put it far enough back in the past, you can say whatever you want. So this is high school shenanigans version of Two Truths and a Lie. Okay, number one, while vacationing with my parents, I stole the keys to their rental car when they were asleep in the hotel room and I drove around California until I got scared. Anyway. <laughs> number two, on New Year's Eve, I lit off a bottle rocket in the living room of my friend Silas Korb. Number three, at lunch, I ate, on a dare, the loogie of Michael Futrell covered in cake crumbs. I hope it's not that one. All right. Uh, OK. You have a second to think about it. How many people think it's the car? The lie. That's the lie, which I, I, did not, I did not steal my parents' car. You, you, all right. One or two. How many people think I did not light off a bottle rocket in Silas Corp's living room? How many people think I did not eat Michael Futrell's loogie? <laughs> I did not light off a bottle rocket in Silasville, so... <laughs> Gross! Okay, um, one of the things I like about that game, if you're really good at it, one of the things you, you develop is the ability to tell a half-truth. Um, Half-truths are anchored in reality. They have enough detail, enough data points, that they sound convincing. Uh, If you want to trick someone, a half-truth is much better than just an all-out fabrication. And what we're going to talk a little bit tonight about is some half-truths, a series of half-truths, in fact, that strung together have become what I think is the most dominant and influential religion in America. Um, You won't have heard of it. We'll we'll get into the name of it later. but it. It impacts the way we think. It impacts the way we live. For those of us who are Christians, these series of half-truths are sort of a filter. They kind of distort the truth coming in and they distort the things coming out. And they just set things off kilter just a little bit. So I want to unpack them, not not necessarily to say, hey, here's a pile of fake stuff and it's dumb and we're right. Um, But more so because I think it's, It's part of our narrative. Um, We're doing this series on colony, and for those of you who are here for the first time or don't know what colony is about, we've been talking about what does it mean to live as people whose citizenship is elsewhere, right? The scriptures say that if we're following King Jesus, um, he's not necessarily like part of the American government. Uh, We're actually citizens of a different government in the kingdom of heaven. So our time here is spent as ambassadors for this kingdom. Uh, As essentially as colonists as our little church and as the big C church throughout the world And so we're trying to figure out what it means to do life specifically for us What does it mean to do life in 21st century North America? So we've talked about things that are pretty current. We talked last week about creation care Uh, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have heard a sermon about what does it look like to care for the earth? Um, Yeah, my dad would call you a, a tree hugger or a hippie and he would get mad Um, and he would mumble about things and and he would go on and talk about something else. We talked about uh, racism, which is a a topic that probably needs more airtime in the church, but I'm glad it got some. Um, If we're people of the kingdom, as as ambassadors, we need to be about justice. And that's not just on any one front. It's total, total justice. We need to fight against oppression. Uh, Cole, a couple weeks ago, talked about just healthy living. Why not, right? We live in a culture where, like, Big Macs, And um, it's okay every once in a while, but it's a a problem for some people. So the idea of colony is what's current, what's real, what matters, and how do we respond to that? And so I think this philosophy that we're going to talk about, this religion, is very real, it's very current. And in my experience doing campus ministry at UCF and teaching some high schoolers over in Maitland, I think that it's ultra-relevant. I think it is the dominant philosophy. Uh, The other reason is that half-truths contain some truth. So, these things we're going to look at, they, they have little little kernels of truth, little nuggets of wisdom, and what I want us to do is maybe unpack them and see where those lead, see what type of plant they can grow into, because the whole truth is actually really freeing. It's actually really beautiful and uh, kind of excites me. So, what we're going to look at is a study that was done about 10 years ago by a team of sociologists out of, I want to say, Notre Dame but just insert the name of a school that inspires confidence. Um, The lead researcher was a guy named Christian Smith. He's written a couple books. Uh, One of them is actually about race in the church, and just if nothing else, just check that book out. It's called Divided by Faith. In this study, they had a grant to study the spiritual lives of American teenagers, and they did this about 10 years ago. So part of it's relevant just because most of us were teenagers 10 years ago, so it was about us. For those of you who aren't, Um, you probably influence teenagers, or you're about to be. It's, I think anyone who doesn't have their AARP card is probably influenced by this philosophy. So if you're under 65, this matters to you. And they went around and they found a very representative sample of folks. So they found folks from all over the country, all types of beliefs, all type of ethnic groups, class, uh, geographies. They really wanted to represent everyone. And, and reading the work is actually really hard because every time they quote someone, they lay out every piece of demographics. So they're like, a 16 year old white Catholic boy from Missouri thought this. Da-da-da-da-da. A 17 year old Jewish Muslim girl from North Dakota thought this. And you're just like, I didn't even know those existed. Um, amazing. Um, so they did all this research. They asked all these questions of these teenagers um, about their spiritual lives and their faith and how that impacted them. Um, And then they took their data, they coded it, and then they went back to these kids and said, all right, we want to have a follow-up interview four hours long. They just dug really, really deep, and then they went back to that, and they spent two years poring over this data to try and reach some conclusions about what teenagers believed. And again, this is relevant for all of us because the teenagers didn't just make it up. They learned it from their parents, so it's, it's a very widespread philosophy. And a couple points. One thing, they found that teenagers mostly believe what their parents believed, which is cool, because we think of teenagers as ultra-rebellious, and uh, nope, they mostly just follow their parents' beliefs. The other thing is that they generally have a favorable view of religion. They think it's cool. They think it helps people. As long as you're not, like, ultra-stodgy about it, it's fine, which is neat. Um, Their summary conclusion, and what we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about, was that there is a dominant religion in America among teens, interestingly. It affects people who are Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, and even non-religious folk. They subscribe to this set of beliefs. Um, it, it's sort of parasitic in that can, it can latch on to all those different belief systems and sort of distort them in its own way. So you don't have anyone going around claiming this. No one has, like, the holy book of this or whatever, but they called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, if you've heard the term before, Uh, cool, you're among the very few. And uh, again, it's not that important of a term. We're not going to say it too much. Because there's again, there's not anyone out there being like, hey, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism service, Uh, we meet at uh, the the YMCA, 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Um, There's no holy code, there's no book. It's just a string of half-truths that when you put together, um, I think do some damage. They put people in captivity. Um, and they separate, they drive a wedge between us and the Lord. So, we're gonna unpack this. I'm gonna give you guys kind of the rundown and then we'll go through it. So, number one, the first kind of tenet of this faith is that a God exists who created the universe and everything in the world and who watches over life on earth. I think that's a pretty mundane way to describe the God of heaven. I think we could do a lot better, but it's the least objectionable among these, so we're just gonna let it slide. Um, so God exists, they're on board with that and the God watches over us. Number two, number two is that God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other. And and that's kind of what's taught in the Bible and most of the world religions. Okay. We're going to circle back to this one. Number three, the main goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God is not necessary to be in your day-to-day life. You don't really need to deal with God too much, except if you need him to solve one of your problems. And then number five, good people go to heaven when they die. All right. Now, now this is not like a shocking list. If you were expecting like you need to worship the trees or like sacrifice your children, that's not up there. These, These things are not that objectionable. If you were watching them go by and you kind of thought, Uh, I was expecting something a little bit more scandalous. I'm sorry to disappoint you. In fact, you can probably see some similarities to Christian theology. Um, You can see some things that maybe overlap a little bit with what it seems like the Bible teaches. So, wherein lies the problem? I want to suggest that as the stakes go up, it's not so much the similarities that we should be concerned about, but it's the differences. So, um... For example, I got pictures of of two little carabiners. All right. Uh, ten years ago, it was really cool to have your keychain uh, carabiner you can have your keys on there. Maybe it's still cool if you have your carabiner keychain right now. It's still cool. I promise. All right. Great. Um, I, like, not that I read men's fashion forums, but I remember people. Yes, I do. Uh, I, I like people were talking about like, oh, like I used to wear this carabiner and now I have like a leather key fob. Um I have seven leather key fobs now. Um, I have zero. I just stick my keys in my pocket and occasionally stab my thigh. Um, anyways, these are pretty similar like uh, if we if we wanted to like get out the whiteboard and, and write a list of similarities, they're black, they're made of metal, they have a clip, they have a hinge, uh, they're kind of a similar shape. If you zoomed in, I think they both say "made in China and and that's, that's all well and good, but I'm no expert in physics, but carabiners are typically supposed to prevent you from falling. And if they don't do that, what happens when you hit the ground is sort of your intestines spring out like a jack-in-the-box and you cease to exist, um, which is not ideal. The stakes are very high with a carabiner when you're climbing. So the similarities are fine. Here's the difference. That one is from cheapkeychains.com, literally, and this is... <laughs> from REI, which is one of the nation's leading climbing uh, retailers. This one says, not for climbing use, and this one can support, I think, 2,700 pounds. The stakes being high means the differences matter more than the similarities. And that's not to say we should go around and like look for all the differences in all the religions and say, you guys suck because you're different. Uh, there's, there's plenty of reason to look for similarities and to find points of connection and points of communion with other folks. But when we're looking at that list, that five things from, from the researchers' findings, I think it's important to hone in on some of the differences and ask if those are critical differences um, and if they're the type of differences that could be... Um, resulting in falling versus being held up. So we're going to look into just three of the things. One, this idea of moralism. What does it mean to be moralistic? Part of my problem with this is that they frame moralism as just how you treat another person, how you deal with individuals on a one-to-one basis. And that's fine. Um, Being nice to other people is is not super hard to do. I mean, there's plenty of jerks out there and, and there's times when it's super hard to be nice, but in general, like, you can, you can muster up the ability to be nice to other people, but that can't be the sum of what it means to be a moral creature. Um, if you guys know Jim Wallace, he writes about politics and faith from time to time. He says, receipts are moral documents. How you spend your money um, is actually leaving a moral paper trail. And there's another voice in Christianity who's like maybe slightly more authoritative than Jim Wallace would be Jesus. And he says that if you've looked at your brother with anger in your heart, you've committed murder, Um, which is problematic. Because we've all kind of been pissed off at someone. So in theory, we're all murderers. Now, in the real world, is, this, is it the same if I kill my brother versus if I'm just mad at him? No, the real world, it's very much worse to do the first one. Keep it in your head. Well, tell someone, but um, don't actually, just don't follow through um, with that one. But Jesus is setting it up to say that it, it, it's not so much the moral actions that I care about. Those are just symptomatic of a problem in your heart right? So when we say we've got moralism as our benchmark, it's just how we treat other people. It's too little, it's too small. It doesn't encompass the whole of morality. The other problem I have with moralism is that when you say, this is my one variable that matters, this is the way that I'm going to think about my relationship with God, you wind up either doing it pretty well and coming off entitled, and you think, God now owes me something because I have performed his checklist.
0: Or you wind up over
1: here um, ashamed, because you cannot perform the checklist. Um, and and as matter, no matter how hard you try, you just are not good enough. Um, that's kind of my story. When I was 12, we had never gone to church. My parents started taking me randomly. I'm not sure why. Um, some may call it providence. Um, and they sent me to this youth for Christ camp and I got saved and I got saved every three years until I was 22 at that youth for Christ camp. Um, God bless altar calls. Um, and I remember one of these triannual salvations that I had, um, was right before I went to, (laughs) you guys know what I'm talking about. Like you guys, all right, all right. Who needs to recommit? And like, okay, that's, um, anyways. I went to college and, and I had adopted this particular form of moralism that was like Christian moralism, Christianism almost. I was still pretty bad at the moralistic part of it, although there, there was this video they played and it was like telling you to get rid of your CDs. They, they were these round discs that you play music on, don't worry about it kids. Um, and it, and it, and it was like green day, no way. And you see the CD flying and it smashes against the wall and then it's like counting crows, your number's up and another CD and it smashes against the wall. So I had like, I had like gotten rid of a bunch of CDs, but I kept like one page in my binder of like the ones that I was like, I just can't do it. Um, I was like, I'm not going to watch an already movie, whatever. And, and it was like, I needed to go to all these Christian things, Right. That was, my, that was my moralism. It was, how many Christian things can I go to? So I was having quiet times. I was going to church on Sunday. I was going to Bible study two nights a week. I was going to this Friday night Christian campus gathering. We're in New Orleans. Why did they put it on a Friday night? Um, I remember, I, I just remember looking around, and I was like, I know who's supposed to be here. I know the Christians. And if they weren't there, I honest, I, they might as well have been on Bourbon Street getting hammered, looking at naked girls, pickpocketing, Injecting heroin into their eyeballs. I, if you were not there on a Friday night, I just assumed you were lost. Um, you had turned your back on the Lord. And, and it was because the only the only measurement I had, the only thing that made me feel safe was showing up to these events, showing up to Christian things, uh, up to my Christian meter enough to feel like I could interact with the Lord. But then in my second life, I was just doing everything wrong, all kinds, all kinds of wrong all the time. And eventually... That just led to this, this place of shame, and we're going to come to that with that, uh, the good feels part of moralistic therapeutic deism. I think, just to illustrate this another way, a very common story, one that we hear a lot because it's so deep and so rich in meaning, that um, just does a great job of illustrating moralism is the prodigal son. If, if you guys... Don't know the tale. There's you know, two brothers and one of them says, hey, dad, I'd like my share of the inheritance. Dad's pretty generous. So he says, here you go. The kid goes off. He just blows all the money while the older brother is kind of hanging out, just doing his thing, uh, agreeing with dad, doing what he's supposed to do. Younger brother kind of just realizes, you know what? My dad has a lot of hired servants. They uh, kind of have it better than I do right now, eating you know, pig food, sitting in the mud. So I'm going to go home and ask my dad if I can just be a hired servant. And there's this scene where the dad sees his son far off, and he runs, and he hugs him. And the son's about to launch into his little plan about how I'm going to work for you, and maybe work off my debt. And there's, it's just not an option. It's just, it's, it's, it's a square circle. It can't happen. Um, it's it's an impossibility. You, as a son, you cannot be a servant. You're just a son, so come into the house. Um, that's it. Your identity is as a son, the end. The older brother's the one with the moralism problem. He's been working away, and, and the dad comes out, and he's like, your brother's back. And um, he's like, I've, I've never done anything wrong. I've done everything you've asked of me, and you've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Which, by the way, can I get an amen? How many of us would just love a goat to celebrate with our friends? That's all I want, Dad! Um, don't listen to this podcast. Um, anyways, he... he, he feels entitled to the Father's blessing. And not only that, he feels like his brother doesn't deserve it. Um, And we're left wondering. We're left assuming that no reconciliation happened. He felt entitled to the Father's blessing, and he was upset when it was doled out uh, to an unworthy candidate. And so the Father and the Son, who was saved, go inside, and, and that's it. Moralism, guys, it leads to either entitlement and ultimately alienation from God when he doesn't perform for you. Or it leads to shame, which also leads to alienation because you can't, you can't go before him because your shame is so great. So when we make the standard our, our performance, we've cut our legs out from underneath us and we alienate us from the very one who can save us. Um, and that isn't to say don't be moral um, or don't, don't do do the good that you know you ought to do. Uh, It's simply to say that if you make that your ticket into the door to see God, your good behavior, it's gonna end very poorly for you. And just as an aside, I understand that you don't need God to to understand what right and wrong are, um, or to to build a good life, or to be a person who's generous. Um, Circling back to what Jesus said, the point isn't to collect a bunch of good deeds, the point is to have a pure heart and we just aren't capable of purifying our own hearts. Um, thanks. So, I want to move on to the second piece, and that's, um, that's the therapeutic element, all right? Um, I'm all for therapy, all right? I, I, I will say, we, my group of friends, we think, like, you probably everyone just needs therapy at some point. Uh, I, we're not necessarily well equipped to deal with the modern world and how fragile our psyches are. I think if all our communities were perfect, we all follow Jesus and listen to the spirit, we probably wouldn't need counseling. We could just counsel each other. But since we're all like just kind of jacked up, um, sometimes we need a, a little professional help. Um, the problem here is that this philosophy, this half-truth, elevates a secondary good, a byproduct, I think, following God to the main thing. It says, your goal is to feel good. Your goal is to feel self-worth. I just don't think you can make that your goal and achieve it. Um, Cup your hands full of water and and keep it in there for a day. Like you can't, it it slips away. What we do is we, we try and sub in something that we're good at, we make that our identity, and then we feel okay about ourselves until we do something crappy in that realm or until we realize that our little achievements don't stack up—they're not enough. And if you're wondering, like, if you're wondering, do I sub anything in for my identity? Think about the areas where you judge someone else. Maybe not like out loud, but in your head. Um, so for me, this is uh, like—I'm just going to like parenting a little bit, okay? I feel like I'm a pretty good dad, and so when I see stuff like uh, going on, here's why you have to judge people. Sorry. <laughs> um, you have to do this. If your identity is wrapped up in something performance-wise, you must judge other people when they're different because it's a threat to you. You're like, I'm good at this. They're doing it different. So if that counts, then mine isn't good anymore, and it and it, it kind of tears away at your identity. So you have to belittle the person who is different from you. Otherwise, it's a threat to your identity. It's a threat to your value. So I just, yeah, I'm a, I'm a jerk um, sometimes, and I see, like... I'll just use an example that isn't like someone's like got their little three-month-old with a bottle full of Mountain Dew, and they're like, and I'm just like, that's bad. Um, that is bad. You could probably say something in that case, but, but like I just, I just feel this this. I have to work really hard. I have to be very intentional to overcome my own biases and my own uh, my own sense of identity, and and just trust that different strokes for different folks is probably a thing. Um, but there's little areas where you see something different and you're like, hmm, that's an area where you've attached a part of your identity, a part of your value to performance, to this thing, to the way that you do it, and um, it's just a a red flag. Just ask yourself, what would happen if I was terrible at this? What would happen if this disappeared tomorrow? Would I still be the same person? Would I still be okay? Um, The other piece with feeling good, once we realize that no like performance thing can do it, we're left with, well, can I, can I give myself self-worth? Can I just say I'm okay? And I think in theory, we, we could, maybe. And some people do this temporarily after they've been to some counseling. If you've heard the term positive self-talk, it's, it's kind of helpful. But I don't think in the long run we can convince ourselves we're okay. Because you know you. Better than anyone else. So in some of my time in counseling, I struggle with this, right? This is this is probably my main thing. My main battle that I fight is this idea, not just that I'm like maybe bad and there's other people who are here and I'm like here, but I struggle with this idea that there's just zero value on the inside of me. None. Um, just, a, just a wasteland. Nothing. Um, I'm kind of saying it with a grin, but it's only because I'm like, I don't want to like weep. Um), <laughs> um <laughs> and, and I remember my counselor saying, "I could line up every person in your life, and you could just walk from person to person, and they could say, "You really meant a lot to me. Like, you, you're really good at this. Like you've really been a good friend to me. You're really generous." Um, and you could go down that line, down that line, and when you got to the end of it, you would walk away and just think, "They don't know anything." And it's true? Because I know me. I know what goes on in here, I know what goes on in here. So every time you try and validate me, that little lie, that, lo- that little self-doubt, that's, that worthlessness is saying, nope, they don't know, they don't know the truth. So I, I cannot deliver myself into self-worth. I can't, I can't do it, I can't make myself feel good, and I think that's the key to happiness that this therapy is trying, trying to deliver to us. You know who can? Jesus, right? Yeah. Right, right, who? has the authority, and who do we trust enough to look us in the eye and say, I know you, and I, and I know about that thing, and I know about that thing, and you're okay. You're okay. The thing that is you, all of it, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, past, present, future, you're okay. We need that. If we, if we can't hear that, if we don't hear that, we're gonna sub things in and sub things in, and elevate things to positions of idols and we're just going to crash and burn and spin out and it doesn't end well. Uh, It's toilsome, it's weary, hurts us, we end up hurting people in our lives. Um, The the, the path to self-worth is not trying to find something you're really good at and crush it. And it's not just hope to have good feels from your religion. It's to let God look you in the eye and say, you're okay. I like you, I did, I did it on purpose. You're here because of me, and it wasn't a mistake. I've got something for you, step into it. He'll tell you that. He'll tell you that if you ask him. And that's the only thing, that's the only way you will achieve lasting self-worth. It's the only way. So yes, absolutely, should our religion be therapeutic? Yes, what does therapy mean? It means healing. We need to heal. We have that question, am I worth anything? Am I competent, am I good at anything? We want to know. The only one who can tell you with any certainty, with any authority, is the Lord. So um, I'm all about it, I'm all about the therapy, but I'm not about making good feeling the end. I'm about making intimacy with God the end, and then guess what comes out of that? The good feeling. This last piece, the last piece is deism. I have these little quotes up here. I didn't even acknowledge it, but these are little quotes from people, the, the little high schoolers that they, they uh, interviewed. So, yeah, God is watching over everything above. Deism is a philosophy. Uh, it came to prominence in the 19th century. The philosophers all kind of saw look at the world, it's pretty complicated. Somebody probably made it, right? Um, yeah, I agree, philosopher A. I don't know. Um, Descartes? No, he's way before that. Uh, don't worry about it. Anyways, um, but, but naturalism was coming into prominence. So they're like, so it doesn't seem like God is currently involved. There are no miracles. We can explain all the stuff that's going on. So God probably just wound up the world and then just kind of like kicked it into existence and now he's kind of just watching it unfold. That's deism, this idea that God did it all, but he's distant. It's so bad, guys. Um, the idea that you don't need God to be active in your day to day life except to solve a problem is true in the same way that you don't need oxygen in your day-to-day life unless you want to breathe. <laughs> yeah, take it or leave it, oxygen. Um, just unless you want to stay alive, then you need it. Uh, you don't need God in your day-to-day life except to solve problems. The problem is our life is a problem. Like, look around. We, we face what's called the human condition. Uh, we're capable of great evil and great good. Uh, there is. Uh, atrocity and there is beauty, and we dream of the afterlife, we, we suspect that it's there. Every culture in all time has has noticed that there's something more probably on the other side of death. We have a moral law that's written on our hearts that crosses culture and time and people and place. Um, that's the human condition, and it's a, it's a riddle, and there's only one solution, so yes. We don't need God except to solve the problem of our very existence. Um, and here's the thing. God could let us know in so many more ways, so much more loudly that he's there. Uh, we could like pull back the curtain and, and there could just be like a giant flaming script in the sky. It would probably be like a really cool, uh, offbeat font, I'm sure. Um, and it would say... It's all true. The Bible is real. Um, you know, go to church, kids. And, and, and it would just be so overwhelmingly true, and, and there would be miracles popping around all the time and nothing bad. God doesn't do that, right? Uh, anybody ever heard of the concept of divine hiddenness? So it's this idea that God draws back a little. Um, he shrouds himself just a little bit. Um, he's still there, and, he, and he's known to every heart. The scriptures teach that. But at the same time, He's, he's not totally present for your eyes to see. If you, if you look in the parables, that Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. And a lot of us think that he uses common language so it's more easy for the common people who are coming to listen to him to understand. But it's not. Um, if you read Matthew, he, he says pretty plainly, This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. He's using parables to keep the truth a little bit obscure so that the people who are callous and the people who care not for the things of God don't get the information given to them for free. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to come after him. And it's not its not like, uh, you know, the tough mutter race to get there. He, he literally says, seek and you will find. Um, open the door. Like, seeking him is is... As tough as getting up off the couch and opening up the door, he's knocking already. But we do have to take that step. We do have to seek him out. He, he has remained hidden a little bit so that we have to participate in the life of the divine. And I'm OK with that. Um, You've you heard me say the word a couple times, intimacy. Intimacy, I think, is the solution here to both fronts, to the moralism problem and to the problem of self-worth. I think coming before the throne room of God, which is a privilege that we have, the Israelites were separated from God. There was a veil. One day a year, the high priest could go in to the presence of the Holy of Holies. Um, And now the veil is torn, and, and Hebrews 4 tells us we can approach the throne of God with confidence because Jesus is our high priest. I love, I love the paradox of a cosmic father. The one who uh, created the earth and you and me from stardust is also our dad. That, that means intimacy is the answer. We can go to him and we should go to him. If you're like, what intimacy, intimacy what does that mean? Use the analog of a human relationship. Stop short of like physical intimacy. Um, what would you do if you wanted to get to know someone a little bit better? Wouldn't you just spend time with them? There's the knowing about, which is important, I think, the intellectual knowing. Um, I think we can get some of that from the study of Scripture. We can get some of that from the study of theology. We can know a little bit more about God. And then there's the experiential knowing. What does it mean to sit next to someone while watching a movie and see what parts they laugh at? Um... There's something of that to be found in the presence of God. You can get there. Maybe you could just watch a movie and be like, watch the movie with me, Jesus. I don't know what happened. Uh, Ask Lander. He probably knows. Um, (laughs) um, But both of those knowings are available to us, and they're the seeds of intimacy. What else do you do with someone that you want to grow more intimate with. Well, for me, I just share. I tell him what's going on, and I, and I try to hide as little as possible. It's, it's somewhat strange, because how much about you does God not know, right? Uh, he's, he's already got it kind of cataloged, but there's something about telling him, voluntarily and intentionally, that draws you near to him. Uh, he didn't need to ask Adam in the garden where he was, why he was hiding, but he did anyway. Gave Adam the chance to opt-in, to tell, to share. And and those two things combined start to build trust. And trust is the bedrock of a real relationship. Um, Now you might be sitting there thinking, wait did we just go in this big circle and you basically said to do like basic Christian stuff uh, like read the Bible and pray? Yes. Yeah we don't really graduate to like ninja level Christianity, that's that's part (laughs) of it. But the other thing is, half-truths are just that, half-truths. Can't you have an unproductive time of prayer? Can't you have an unproductive quiet time? Can't you have an unproductive time in the scriptures? It's possible. Um, Maybe not unproductive is the greatest word, but can't you approach those things with a performance mentality? With the idea of, like, I need to do this. I need to do my spiritual things so that I can feel a little bit better about my spiritual self, or I need to do my spiritual things so that God will give me the things I want. Um, there's the half-truths, guys. That's that's it right there. The moralism. The idea of giving your getting something from God. That's it right there. So it, it, it's not do or don't do these things, or follow this list, or don't follow this list. It's Can you approach God through the lens of intimacy? Whatever that looks like for you. Can you you put on the back burner the idea that I have to do X, Y, and Z for God um, and just say, I want to know you more. I I want an answer to the question, I know theologically what it is, but I want to know, am I okay? When you look at me, are you ashamed of me? When you look at me, do you see your son or your daughter? And what do I do after that? So, pursue intimacy, guys. It's, it's the answer to this problem of the age. And I, and I really do think that list of half-truths, you know someone who's right in it. Maybe you were right in it, I was right in it. Um, and it took, it took intentionality to take these things which are in the subconscious, to, to pull them out, to examine them, and say, they're not the whole truth. It, I'm not just trying to destroy some ideology, I'm just trying to get somewhere real and meaningful, somewhere hopeful and helpful, somewhere where the Lord is. Um, and so th- the last thing, guys, if, you, if you're like, well, I'm, I've dealt with that and I'm on the other side of it, or, or whatever, but I know a bunch of people who are right in it, right in the thick of it. What about my friends? This is all I would say to that. Do what the the sociological researchers did. Just be curious. Ask your friends, Well, what do you believe about God? What what do you think? Um, How does that look in your your day-to-day life? That question is gold. People don't mind talking about themselves. Um, When you're interested in them, they'll just kind of tell you. Um, And you can begin to understand their motivation. You can see, do they have some sort of moralism going on? Do they have some sort of self-worth? Are they trying to fill it up um, in, in a way? Is it like a leaky bucket and they're just putting accolades or putting their performance here? And Have they ever heard God tell them they're okay? And if they haven't, we've got Jesus' example. When he first meets some of his disciples and they say, where are you staying, Master? He doesn't tell them. He says, come and see. And you can do the same thing. Say to your friends, come and see. Come and see the Lord. Come and see what he's done in me. Come and see what he's doing right now among us, among the city, among our church. Yeah. So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to continue on. We're going to worship the Lord. Some songs. Holy God, the one who looks at us and not through the rose-colored lenses of a proud parent or um, the judging lenses of a a boss, but who looks at us and sees our totality and says, yep, I did that. It was on purpose, and it's good. Lord, we want more of you. We want to come into your presence. We want to sit at your feet and to know you, to hear you answer the questions of our soul, to have you form us, to have you shape us, so that you would receive glory, so that we could be free to go out and free others. Lord, it's been said that Christians are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And I'm all right with that, Lord. Help us to to remember that you've called us, you've chosen us. You've renewed our hearts. If they're pure, it's because of you. To your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.